0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics.
1: Good evening, everyone. This is uh, Interpreter Foundation Radio this evening. We want to welcome all of you on behalf of myself, Terry Hutchinson, and my co hosts, John Gee, Kevin Christensen, and joined by our new co host, Mark Johnson. Good evening, gentlemen. Good
2: evening. Evening.
1: Kevin? Good evening. All righty. You know, this is our our interpreter show tonight, and it's brought to you, of course, by the Interpreter Foundation. The mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. We also provide accurate information to the public about the church, and we make available free to everyone on the internet, Scholarship on a variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org. So we defend the church against misunderstandings and criticisms. We're not owned, controlled by, affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the material that we publish or produce on this program is the sole responsibility of the authors and the foundation. Um, I'll take the blame for all of this evening, you guys. So you can rest easy. Sweet. All right. Um, We also uh, want to note that um, continuing every week you get at least one article online, we'd encourage you to go to the Interpreter Foundation website, subscribe. There are all kinds of resources available for study, available for Come Follow Me, available for the Temple, uh, the Witnesses Project, uh, several other projects. Um, Just a lot of fascinating material between books, articles, podcasts, conference, videos, um, you name it. Uh, The The great thing about Interpreter Foundation also is it's a volunteer organization, and nearly every dollar that's donated goes to the foundation's projects. Um, You can look at that online. They've got a very open and transparent financial disclosure statement, and every dollar that you donate is also tax-free. It's tax-deductible. If we are a 501c3 corporation. Now, we also want to thank this evening's other sponsor, the Kimber Academy, which is a K-12 private school. Unlike public schools, they're able to keep God in the classroom. The Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students toward faith and morality with quality, engaging curriculum. And at Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard in Utah. Now, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah, and there are many other locations throughout the United States. So if you want to find out more or schedule a tour, call the director, Jessica Bianco, that number, 801-362-7158, or you can go to KimberSchool.com. That's KimberSchool.com, or once again, that number, 801-362-7158. So... This evening, gentlemen, we are going to spend uh, the next the rest of the hour talking about uh, lesson number I want to say five or uh, six, maybe, um, and it is uh, Second Nephi one, or excuse me, Second Nephi chapters one and two, and so um, we'll be talking about Come Follow Me, and then in the second hour we'll have some other uh, special ideas, and discussion topics that we've got here as a group. But um, this has always been one of my favorite scriptures to discuss. Um, I, Second Nephi chapter 2 has always been one of my favorite chapters, and it's a little odd because I personally am not big on philosophy. And yet it seems to me that with the idea of agency and its juxtaposition and the plan of salvation and the whole business about you have to have opposition in order to uh, make the world go and and all the rest of the things that are in this chapter, kind of a heavy dose of philosophy. Um, But luckily I know at least one of us has a little bit or a smattering of philosophy and I don't, John, I don't think it's you. No. No, I I wanna (laughs) say Kevin. Kevin is our resident philosopher of our group. Would that be fair to say, Kevin? Hmm. I don't know if he can hear us. Let's have him call.
0: Yeah, I just got, I just was accidentally muted.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, there we go.
0: It it wouldn't quite be fair to other philosophers, but I think uh, I've been impressed by just the philosophy in this. In fact, uh, I remember, I think, sometime before my mission, there was an article in the, uh, uh, in the, the, the era when it was for young I people. I was going to say, I think
1: they called it the Improvement Era, and it was yeah, way back era. for adults, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's at one point it was like it was for the Youth Magazine. I'm maybe getting the title, but there was a, a woman wrote an essay for that where she just talked about just the kind of concerns she had about questions in her life, and she kind of mulled through uh, several of these uh, ponderable questions, and then she pointed out that the second Nephi answered all of them just in one spot, one chapter of the Book of Mormon, and I, I've been trying to find that article for years, but I haven't been able to find it since, but I was just impressed by uh, the concentration of profound thought in this article. That It's, uh, it's just rich from verse to verse to verse, and, and the, the concentration here is astonishing, as well as the insights.
1: Mark, what How do you feel about some of the ideas in in this section? I mean, and there's kind of a juxtaposition between chapters one and chapter two.
3: There really is. And it's interesting um, how just all of these um, discussions and blessings from uh, Lehi, um, you know, fill so many, um, hit so many points and, you know, are are so full of uh, these deep teachings and he, he puts all of these into, you know, these, these blessings that he's giving to his son. And they're, each, each one of them is, a, you know, just a, a masterwork. We've got ones where he quotes, um, we're well, we not going to talk about chapter three, really. That's not in our, our range. But, you know, quotes um, from a lot of, you know, parallel material to the, the Joseph Smith translation. Um, and then we've got in chapter two here, he's quoting, you know, stuff that's parallel to the, the early book of Moses um, you know adam fell and all of that just this this huge breadth of of historical sources that he's using um and in just different ways of bringing this material to us it's it, it's really a, a literary masterwork you know the guy's a you know a powerful uh, orator and teacher and uh, writer
1: yeah it's it's really i mean this is really where lehi comes into his own in terms of the teachings that nephi provides for us
3: it really does i it, i think to me at least it did really makes me want to read um you know some of those lost pages those lost teachings that you know martin harris (laughs) lost (laughs) so early on in the in
1: the church i would just love to to read more of this uh this wisdom yeah john you know lehi had some kind of a background in antiquity with some kind of teaching or or ideas Are, are these unique to some of the other areas that were there at the time of of Lehi.
2: Uh, certainly, nobody puts it together the way that Lehi does. Um, there are lots of themes that get repeated. So, I just pulling one here that I happen to glance on uh, in Second Nephi one twenty, and it, he says, and he saith, inasmuch as you shall keep my commandments, he shall prosper in the land. And that's repeated a, a number of times. Um, remember when President Nelson was a young apostle, uh, he mentioned this and said it occurred. I think he said 84 times in the scriptures, and then in his conference talk, he in a footnote he listed them all. Uh, but but this that idea shows up in. Uh, in the ancient world and so you can sometimes find the ideas but some of the ways that he puts it together um, then is not something that you find uh, especially as clearly as he does it Uh, you can find bits and pieces throughout uh, but some of it you don't find other places, and then certainly not the way he put it together.
1: So, I, you know, it's interesting. Let's, let's back up a minute and, and kind of break this down a little. In chapter 1, early on, uh, in verse 4, Lehi says, For behold, I have seen a vision, in which I know that Jerusalem is destroyed. And had remained in Jerusalem, we should also have perished. Well, I'm kind of wondering— They've left Jerusalem on the premise it's going to be destroyed, and now that they're in the promised land, they get confirmation it's destroyed. It's really, for them, no longer the promised land. Their family has this new promised land. And Lehi goes through in this chapter and identifies some of the new promises that are going to be there if they do certain things, and it's tied in just as John was saying. But, Kevin, does this mark a difference uh, in the Book of Mormon, say, from some of the other elements that we've seen in the Old Testament? I mean, I've always viewed the Book of Mormon as really being an Old Testament people, for lack of a better yeah. term.
0: Yeah, well, the, the promise goes with your location. So it, it, the covenants are the same. It's just if wherever you are, if you happen to, to keep the covenants, then it will be a promised land for you. And like the, he says, uh, this land the Lord the Lord hath covenanted this land unto me and unto my children forever, and also those who should be led out of other countries. So it's not exclusive. So the promises are going to apply to everybody that shows up here. It's not just Lehi's children, but other people in other areas. And I like that he says, uh, he's, when he's laying out the, the conditions, he says there's many nations who would overrun the land. So they're not alone here. There's people out there. And then he says at one point, he gives the conditions for the blessings, and then he also lays out the covenant curses. And I think it's important that that uh, one of the one of the covenant curses is, says, uh, if you don't keep all of these commandments, you know, if you don't, uh, if you reject the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer, he will bring other nations unto them, and he will give them power and take away from them the lands of their possessions, and he will cause them to be scattered and smitten. Then the time element there is important. Yea, as one generation passeth. To another, there shall be bloodshed and great visitations among them. Wherefore, my sons, I would, that you would remember that uh, hearken to my words. So there's this immediacy to it. And I notice uh, in, in the second Nephi chapter 5, that's exactly where the covenant curse is applied, because that's when they're scattered, smitten, and have the conflicts, and they have to go elsewhere. And when Nephi, uh, Nephi takes all those who will follow him, and they go off. So it's it very quickly, this setting of conditions and, you know, the potential blessings and the, the problems that can come with disobedience are all laid out very clearly at the start.
1: So, Mark, early on in this chapter, they talk about this land, um, you know, how it's a, a promised land. It's, it's choice above all other lands. But, the, uh, but the, the Lord has covenanted, but actually in the original manuscript, the word that's used is consecrated. Mm. So is there a difference between between covenanted and consecrated? I mean, probably not in the one sense, but if you do apply that word consecration, what, does that change the meaning for you? To me, it
3: does. Um, To me, the covenant seems, just to imply more of, you know, a two-party thing where, you know, he'd have to covenant with the people of the land rather than obviously wouldn't covenant with the land itself. Um, consecrate seems to make a lot more sense in that light. You know, the land can be consecrated or set apart, you know, made holy for the people to come and, and live here and serve the Lord.
1: That's a, that's a good note. Mm-hmm. So, John, these promises and these blessings to the, to the boys, essentially, uh, that's something that's often done in antiquity and in the Middle East, right? In uh, kind of in this format, the father gets the family around and pronounces certain promises or blessings or is this, that's wh- an what are Israelite some distinct
2: thing as far as we know, Kay. um, it can't exclude it happening, but we don't have any other record other than the, mainly the patriarchs do it in Genesis. Um, you have Abraham doing it, Isaac doing it, uh, Jacob, Jacob certainly does it. Does it it's in a, uh, forty-nine chapter of uh, Genesis. But you don't really see that much of that sort of leaving a blessing, at least that's recorded in any other culture that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to back up a little bit on this scene of vision, because let's think a little bit about chronology here. They leave in the first year of the reign of Zedekiah. They spend eight years in the wilderness. They come to Bountiful. Zedekiah reigns for 11 years. So even if you took a couple of years to build a boat and a year to travel to the promised land, uh, then there's no way Lehi would know this other than through a vision. Mm -hmm. And um, they've probably been a little while in the promised land before you even get to that. So, uh, you know, they could be as, uh, could be there two or three years or more before Lehi's gathering his children together for his final bl- blessings.
1: Well, as as Mark was saying, I think that a better, maybe more clues to the chronology would be found in the 116 pages. It's possible, yeah, we, it, we don't know.
2: Yeah, the, the 116 pages are, um, what would really be interesting is to see What? Not Mormon's abridgment, but Lehi's record, Uh, which isn't, which wasn't uh, buried by Moroni. Yeah. Um, So the unabridged record, that would be, uh, probably have lots of really interesting details that uh, would have a hard time swallowing. Um,
1: who, who who in the modern church do you think has dibs on that in the next life no no. okay that's I mean, too much just, speculation I mean, right? it just,
2: um, it, it's just the, the more we learn about this material or the more I learn about it the stranger the cultures that the book of Mormon comes out of uh, up here at least to a modern person mm-hmm. um, I Told my students uh, over a year ago that uh, it's weirder than you can imagine.
1: <laughs> I like those. it. That's the poll quote from tonight's program, John Gee. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Book of Mormon peoples are weirder no, than no, we can imagine. The cultures they, the come, cultures from they come from, from are okay. weirder right, than well. we can imagine. <laughs> I, I do love yeah. the
3: concept Mark. of just these these lost pages, though, because in my own you know in my own home, um, as I'm talking to my you know kids um, about the scriptures, they you know, come up with all the hard questions. Like, well, what was Nephi's? He, had, he did he have kids? He had kids, right? What was his, was his What was his wife's name? And I'm just I just point to you. you know, just point to your him. wife and
1: say, "Hey, uh, ask your mom. Ask
3: your mom." I, I got Don Bradley's book here. Read that. You know, there's, <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be somewhere. Yeah. Nephi. I think know. Don's the fourth week for the Interpreter week. Foundation. So yeah. a couple of weeks from now, we go talk to him about call that. Call in and ask for exactly. Don. Exactly, but these these things aren't. They're, they're lost to us, but, you know, Nephi wasn't, you know, deliberately given the, the cold shoulder to his wife or his kids necessarily. Did you just, you know, I just think he mentioned them elsewhere. Yeah.
2: Well, Nephi writes this record over 30 years after he left, and that's what he says, and he's had time to think about it. And the other thing is, he's lived through three cultures, so he's lived in Jerusalem, and seen what pre-exilic Jerusalem is like. He's lived in Arabia and seen what that's like, and now he's living in the New World, and he sees what that's like. And I think one of the the brilliant things about Nephi and also about Morona Mormon as an editor is that they strip away, they don't put a lot of the history... They only put as much history as you need in there. And he, Nephi is deliberately stripping away all of this stuff he'd gone through uh, that might interest us because these are all very different places, but because he knows the gospel co- goes across those borders and can apply to those various cultures, he can pull out those elements of the gospel that are not culturally contingent, and that's what he gives us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's not going to put any neat detail that doesn't fit his theme. And so all of the civilization in South Arabia that he goes through and— it's a pretty impressive civilization. He doesn't mention it. He doesn't mention the the cultures he goes gets into in the New World. That's not part of his purpose. And he says the other plates have that. Yeah. This is I'm not going to clutter the, these plates up with that. He has a very specific things in mind, and all of the rest of that just doesn't show up. It's,
1: it's kind of interesting because in, in our interview with uh, Grant Hardy for interpreter with Martin Tanner, on well, the annotated Book of Mormon, one of the questions I asked him is, if you could see the gold plates, what would you be looking for? Um, you know, everybody kind of has their own answer. Grant Gardner had a, had an answer. I I have an answer. and And Grant's was, I would be really interested to see the story of Mosiah the first and how they went into the wilderness and wound up in Zarahemla, and somehow, as a minority people, got the people of Mulek to say, "Oh yeah, and you can be our kings." He says, "This sounds like there's quite a political thriller there," but everybody kind of is interested because Mark was just saying, "Hey, I'd be curious about these things. We we would like them for our full context." I but, think
3: that's too one of the things John was mentioning mm-hmm. is just how focused, you know, Nephi's writing was, and how, you know, he's just distilling the gospel down for all of us, right. you know, despite the culture, and I'm, I'm just wondering if I'm okay to be grateful for that, and at the same time, frustrated by that.
1: Is that, I, <laughs> is that okay? Y- y- your frustration is on you. I'm, I'm not, who am I to judge, Well, right? you know how that is. I I'm just, not my brother's keeper.
3: I would <laughs> love, like, you know. <laughs> we all would. Everyone, just to, yeah. to see some of those yeah. details, just to, just get a little, little scratch, just a little more. Sure. A little more of that. Sure.
1: So, Kevin, what uh what are then if we're paring everything down here from Nephi in chapter 1, what do we pull out of it essentially from the gospel? We we're you know, we're ignoring all the cultural things and everything, but he's got certain promises, he's got certain uh requirements that he's putting on the sons. What are they? Well,
0: uh, these uh his Talking about prospering in the land, there's certain things they're supposed to do. That is, you know, to serve their redeemer, to to follow them. So it's just laying out the blessings and the curses and uh, what you're what you're supposed to do. And after laying out those conditions, and then he kind of gives his own authority for and his feelings. You know, this. Uh, Oh, that you would awake from a deep sleep, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful change from which you are bound—the change which bind the children of men. There's that, you know, worry. Awaken, arise from the dust, line in chapter one, verse fourteen, and uh, so he's waxing poetic and passionately. you're giving. You know, he, he talks about how this has been the anxiety of my soul from the beginning. He wants them to be obedient. Your heart, my heart, hath been weighed down for, with sorrow from the time to time for I feared lest the, for the hardness of your hearts that the Lord God should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you. So there's that you know, worry and there's you know, talking about the, not just them, but also you know, being a fa- the, the blessing that he wants for them and the fear that he has for what's actually going to happen to them and how that's uh, weighing him down with, with sorrow. And he just, he wants to lift them up. It, it's 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 related to his vision of the tree of life where he he tasted the fruit himself and he wanted to share it and there's the sorrow that his two older sons just weren't interested and he's trying here desperately to lay things out to, to state the conditions to kind of remind them of what's been going on you know in verse 24 where he says rebel no more against your brother whose views have been glorious and who have kept the commandments from the time we have left jerusalem and who hath been an instrument in the hands of God in bringing us forth into this land of promise. For were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. You know, and he says, yeah, but you even tried to kill him. And he talks about that, you know, just this... He he defends
1: Nephi quite a bit. Um, He he says, uh, no, no, Nephi's not trying to be your ruler. That's not his agenda hmm. at all. He just is And if he speaks, you know, angrily to you, it's because of the passion he has for you to have the gospel. I, I think
2: that line that you picked up um, in Second Nephi one fourteen, "Awake and arise from the dust," is interesting to me because this is one of the cultural references that actually makes it through. Because um, in Nephi's world, the world they come from, the only people who use chairs are kings and rulers. And so everybody sits on the ground, in the dust. And so this awake and arise from the dust, that's where everybody sits. And so he, and he has that recurring theme. So he has, it shows up in uh, verse 13, "I would that you should awake, awake from a deep sleep. Verse 23. And and verse 23, Mm -hmm. awake, my sons, put on the armor
1: of righteousness. In fact, there's a a kind of a chiasm that um, Grant Hardy points out, actually, and he's got a little chart in his annotated Book of Mormon. It goes from verse 13 to verse 14 to verse 17, 18, 18, and then in 20 it flips, and then it goes backwards, 21, which matches 18, 22, which matches 18, uh, Twenty-two, which matches seventeen, and then the awake shake off the change with which you are bound. Sh- awake, shake off the awful change by which you are bound. So you you know you have that extra emphasis on those two phrases that mm-hmm. that um, are are really an additional emphasis. So we we get through his his you know Lehi's teaching to the to the boys in particular Zoram. Not really, Nephi though. I I, I think Nephi's it's kind of interesting that Nephi's not included in these, or Nephi perhaps left his out altogether. I think he
2: left his out.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Mark?
2: Yes, I think. Okay. <laughs>
1: I think he
3: left them out. Um, it's it's not. Well, he's been spending a lot of time, um, in, in a lot of subtle ways, and Noel Reynolds has written a lot about this. How Nephi is setting his, you know, brothers up as, you know, kind of just failures. They they're, you know, not they're not keeping the commandments. They're, you know, acting dishonorably, you know, to both um his fa you know, the high and to the Lord. Um, you know, they're not faithful and, you know, even one point they, they, you know, worship Nephi later in the in the book. They fall down at his feet and worship him. And you know, Nephi, I think he's set himself up by this point as being the, the rightful and legitimate, um, you know, or leader of his people. He, he's not, I don't, I don't think he's got anything to, to, you know, any other points he needs to make by this point. And as, as Nephi, you know, is writing 30 years in advance now, um, he's, you know, he knows that, you know, the next couple chapters, they're going to be, um, uh, going to be, you know, splitting, going to be heading out into the wilderness and.
1: I I you know maybe maybe it was real personal and and I I do like what you said that bo- both of you I tend to agree with that 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 um whatever the message was to Nephi Nephi's message is all here and and as as John was talking about earlier he's really focusing on the gospel that's reaching out over all the generations and everything and just trying to get the pure gospel in and that's this is really for me where chapter 2 takes off mm-hmm. his Lehi's Lehi's talk to Jacob. Lehi's talk to Joseph. That's where where Lehi really uh, hits his stride with regard to these kind of things.
2: And, and Nephi is actually in his first and second Nephi is writing um, in a genre that we know from the ancient Near East and one that uh, is not terribly common, but is we have a couple of very famous attestations from it, and it's usually called an apology. And what this is is a defense usually of somebody who wasn't in line for the throne for why they have the throne. Hmm. So you have the apology of Hadushili and the Apology of Haddon, and Nephi uh, and Nephi's is constructed very similar to both of those, uh, and they have very specific things that they. And it's also been argued that uh, David's, uh, the story of David in, uh, in Second Samuel is, an apology. Verse, is is an
1: apology? Well, you know, he. Right? I mean the the what the. Let's talk for, about that for a minute. What are now. some of the things that Nephi that Nephi puts in about his own behavior that might qualify for that? I mean, the story of Laban would be a, an example. Have you got any others, maybe well, Kevin? That, and okay, then we'll ahead, we'll have Kevin. John go.
0: Um. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean that's kind of like what Noel Reynolds mentioned. His work as Nephi's work as a political testament, where he's you know this uh, justification for the government and who's who's running things basically and who's shouldn't be running things. It's, it's all interestingly laid out here in the stories that are told at the start and uh, setting out the conditions. And there, there's that there's a contrast here between his uh, concern for layman and Lemuel. There's you know the parental ache here that comes out very clearly. There's a, a deep feeling and a deep concern and a hope that things are going to turn out better than he fears. And there's a, an interesting shift, I think with when he goes from talking to Laman and Lamel to when he's talking to Jacob about how, um, affirming it is, you know, recognizing you know, the different kind of thing where but Jacob, um, Jacob is going to be a spiritual leader. He's you know, later he's he's consecrated as a priest. He's a temple priest, you know. And, and he he's, uh, he says, uh, "In thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. Nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness, thou knowest the greatness of God, and He shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain." Which is, you know, really an uplifting message. And, you know, all the stuff that you've gone through is going to be worth it. And then he says. That uh, thou in thy youth thou hast beheld his glory, wherefore thou art blessed, even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. That I'd mentioned that article I'd seen in the, you know, in, you know in the young adult magazine years ago, where this is a thing that was talked about. He says, you know, comparing, uh, if only we would lived in the days of the New Testament, we would have been able to see and hear. But I's talking to Jacob about how he's already done that. He, it's even this time that he's lived that he's. Hasn't been in Jerusalem and hasn't had those kinds of opportunities yet in this life that he's had, even with all these afflictions and tribulations and troubles. Thou hast beheld in a youth his glory, wherefore thou art blessed, even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. You know, and that's it's giving us all this equality before God, these opportunities before God, and there's you know just the way that the chapter goes on about opposition and all things there's we've used just conversation about layman and lemuel there's that fear of what happens if you go one way and with jacob here's going the other way but i noticed that he's he's not painting a picture of it's all going to be blessings in life you know that you're going to suffer this is going to be hard it's not just uh everything's going to be great if you're obedient it's everything's going to be worth it if you're obedient you will prosper ultimately even if they have to go through some hard times, and that, that's an important message to give, an important expectation to set properly.
1: So John, was getting back to the the point that you were making, was that the kind of thing that goes in that yeah, apology?
2: Well, the apology? The apology, I think the two most important things in there are that it's important to show that uh, the individual has divine favor and that he does the will of God. And those two things are consistent in, in Nephi's presentation of himself. Um, and he also, I think also uh, important for his purposes, um, when we look at 2 Nephi 2, um, say 6 through... Uh, 10, where he talks about redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah. He is full of grace and truth. So Nephi does what uh, the other uh, apologies don't. He points you to the Messiah and not um, as not to himself. And he says it's it's how great the importance to make these things known unto
1: the inhabitants of the earth. But isn't isn't essentially that the grounds for his apology? I mean, if he's going to be the king, which he he turns out to be later, in you know in this record, that's the justification for it, is it not? Well, except at least to me.
2: Well, except that you've got to re- realize there's this undercurrent in in Jewish, uh, and in pre-exilic times of. Yes, there is a king, but there is a messiah coming, and both of the, the king is anointed, but the messiah is the, the anointed, the yeah. anointed. He's the one that, and the the king is just a a type or a shadow of that messiah. And so that's one of the differences between, as it were, Nephi's apology and say, Esarhaddon, or Hadashili, where it's, for them, it's, I am the Messiah. And mm-hmm. Nephi, it's, well, I am a leader of this people, but I'm trying to lead them to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so the this whole emphasis on the Messiah, and that winds up his even after he's a leader which happens in chapter 5 he still spends you know the rest of his time saying well we talk about Christ and we prophesy of Christ and and then this is an example of those prophecies that he includes that the redemption cometh in and through the holy messiah and not through Nephi
1: so you know getting into chapter two, this is where we, we really start some things, and particularly um, the title of our lesson is Free to Choose Liberty and Eternal Life Through the Great Mediator. So one of the things that, that struck me, and, and Kevin kind of got me thinking about this and reminded me in some of our previous discussions, we've, we've been together a few years now, but um, in DNC 93, um, Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself, as all intelligence also, otherwise there is no existence. Behold, here is the agency of man, and here is the condemnation of man, because that which was from the beginning is plainly manifest unto them, and they receive not the light. So, if, if we look at that, this was, this was something that came to Joseph Smith four years after the Book of Mormon. So, um, you know, Mark, what is it about agency that's the central part of the plan of salvation is explained by Lehi in this chapter? And you have a minute. No. <laughs> 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 All right, Set your watch. Hey, whatever you can't do, Kevin will fix and then John will clean up after and
3: us. And then we'll just send it to editing and we'll clean up the whole the whole
1: podcast. And that's right. I like that. I like and that I'm a not lot. gonna mispronounce any words.
3: <laughs> um, hmm. the issue of agency is well, it's such an interesting one because really as we understand um you know, salvation and becoming like our, our Savior. If we didn't have, you know, this ability to act on our own, coupled with the ability to, you know, be buoyed and carried by by the Savior, who you know makes up the the monumental gap, the huge gap that we all have. Um, you know, we we couldn't do it. We couldn't become like God. Um, but we have to, you know, choose it on our own. We have to. You know, make a, a deliberate choice. It's it reminds me of. It reminds me of um, the uh, the the beggar in uh, the early chapters of the book of Acts. He was looking for you know some alms, and and Peter told him he says you know we don't have any silver or gold right now, but you know if you you know stretch out your hand, you know you'll walk, and, and you know this is done through the the power of Jesus Christ, and you know the beggar could have decided. No, that's not what I want. This isn't this isn't what I want. I don't want that. I want I want, you know, I want these alms. I want some silver or gold or you know, just, just something. I'm happy, you know, here in my miserable state that I've been in for my whole life. But instead, you know, he was given this this opportunity to use his agency and he chose to reach out. And I think that is for me one of my favorite examples of this agency. It's it's we get to choose you know, to reach out and, and, and then i let Christ save us.
1: Mm-hmm. So Kevin, getting back to this, um, we tie this agency thing in with the plan of salvation and the plan of salvation to me, that that's really the heart of, uh, I'm, I'm almost without words, but the choice that Adam and Eve make in the garden, um, to take the fruit the one sweet and the other bitter. I mean, does that mean they're choosing between ice cream and potato chips? I don't know. But um what I I remember I remember for me this is really the wrestle that sometimes we have is that God gives them conflicting commandments. Okay? Adam fell that men might be men are that they might have joy, but you know, we we know that Adam had to fall and Lehi talks about this, but even so, it's it's a it's a kind of a difficult dilemma. How how are we threading the needle here in this chapter? And then um, we'll have John follow up with that as well.
0: Well, I, I I really got to appreciate this story by reading a book called Eve: The History of an Idea which is kind of a history of the that, Christian That's the recent one,
1: right, that, that, that came yeah,
0: out? That's, that's, that's about 30 or 40 years ago it came out.
1: Oh, okay. And, then I'm it, mixing it, it up uh, with the new title.
0: In yeah, this this isn't an, is an, yeah, an older book, but, but just taking the case that uh, it's all misogynistic, blaming you know, Eve for everything, you know, that uh, like the quotes are truly in that Women is the Devil's Gateway. And you have this great passage in here where Lehi is saying, "Wherefore the Lord God gave unto man, that he should act for himself, wherefore man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. And there's different conditions that are set out. There's, they're in the gardens, but they're in the garden. They're just where really nothing is going to happen. There's no point to it until they they leave. And there's, uh, behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. Therefore, they would have remained forever and had no end, and they would have had no children. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. And then the great line, Adam fell that men might be, men are that they might have joy. And he talks about the Messiah coming to set all this up. So there's this, this situation that we're put in, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: You know, you take it. You know, as, as a symbolic state where you are entering into this world. There's a great moment in uh, mm-hmm. the Power of Myth interviews that Bill Moyers did with Joseph Campbell years ago, where Moyers asked Campbell, "Why is it that all these stories, you know, throughout the world, it's always the, the women who's the initiator that who enter into this world?" You know, and, and Joseph Campbell says, "Yeah, because it's through the women that we enter into this world of opposites." It's almost as though he had been reading our scriptures when he said that. But it's, it's this idea that we're, that there is that, you know, if you obey the commandments in that situation, there's one consequence. But we're, we're, they were given a choice, and they were given a choice with consequences, and the choice that was made that we learned in, you know, here and in the Pearl of Great Price in more detail and in the temple, this was the right thing to do. To enter into this world of opposites so that we can gain this experience. So we have to separate, we have this initiation and return. That's the great uh this central pattern of the you know, the mythic patterns throughout the world. There has to be this separation, and initiation and a return through this thing. So this is this moment of separation for this initiation into this life. And the Messiah prepares the way that we can return, to get the full benefit of this thing. So this is getting into that that we have to be able to be really enticed i think Nibley talks about you know this the, the doctrine of the two ways and he, i think he refers to the clementine recognitions is with peter explaining this same idea that you've got to have the choice you know, that you know, that if god just made everyone do good it would be no virtue to be good because it's like you're programmed you know it would be these automatons that are just doing what we're told instead of agents who are doing what we are and you mentioned dnc 93 which is making the case that we have always had this agency that we've always been intelligences with some capacity to learn and and recognize and choose and experience the consequences of those choices otherwise there's no existence it's a profoundly powerful notion
1: so John
2: what do you think Um, one of the things about agency to remember is that it's a basically a Doctrine and Covenants term. There's no mention of agency, no mention of agents in the Book of Mormon. They talk about being free. And one of the things that I've been struck by recently is that when Lehi and his family are going down through Arabia, bountiful they're going through a country to through a country where you would have these military raids and they would take they would kill a number of people and then take thousands of captives these captives became slaves and were no longer free uh, so Lehi says men are free according to the flesh and all things are given them which are expedient unto men, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life or to choose captivity and death. So they they have this the ability to be free which slaves did not have and there's a background of slavery in Lehi's talk that doesn't really figure uh, into the Doctrine and Covenants. They're using a different concept there. And agency as such is a concept that you find in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it does show up in the Pearl of Great Price too, uh, in Moses. But this is not something that appears in the Book of Mormon. They don't talk about agents. They don't talk about agents Uh, They talk about being free to choose. Talking about free to be choose and accountable for their choices. Yes, yes. And so and also noting that it's the great mediator of all men. So one of the ways that you could get, become free if you'd been taken captive is by being redeemed. And somebody could pay somebody a bunch of money to set you free. And And that's a metaphor for the atonement that they use throughout the Book of Mormon. It's not the only one, Mm -hmm. but it is one that they use. And it's one that they use specifically here. As in the previous verse, the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because they've been redeemed from the fall, they've become free forever. They know good from evil, and they can act for themselves and not be acted upon. Mm-hmm. Whereas slaves do not get to act for themselves. So this is a, a different sort of concept. And it comes, uh, it's one of those places where uh, their background is, is bleeding
1: through. But don't they, don't they kind of talk about slavery in the sense of everlasting chains of hell? Oh, no, they, they talk about slavery. It's a different concept.
2: But it's a, being a slave where mm. you you are told what to do versus being free where you get to decide what to do. Right. And it says we're free to choose. Um, and and that's the, the difference there. Um, and it's less of a talk about um, being an agent unto your, yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doctrine and Covenants ideas about agency um, are really worth examining in close detail, but they're, not, they're built on a different idea than you find in the Book of Mormon.
1: So, Mark, what are some of the things in this chapter, though, that that, that freedom comes with consequences, as John was just saying? But then also, there's certain, there's certain things that have to happen to exercise that freedom. Mm-hmm. OK, so what what are some of the things in this chapter where where Nephi talks about that and actually provides kind of a footprint? Let me give you an example uh, verse five uh, where it says, um, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men. by the law, no flesh is justified or by men are the law, by law men are cut off. okay? But then once again, you have to, first of all, know what the lie is. So maybe there's, there's some other things there. Right in the, and right in the midst of all this, you get, you get opposition thrown in there.
3: You do, yeah, and I think that's where verse 16 comes in. It talks about how, um, you know, even though we are free to act for ourselves, um, it's impossible for us to act for ourselves um, unless we're enticed by, you know, one idea or, or the other. You know we have to have you know a, a choice between one of two things or one or more things um to actually be uh, you know actually be free and not not just slaves to to only one thing um if if we don't have um you know this this idea of opposition in all things um this this extra influence on us to to overcome you know we we can't can't choose god you know he's not that's not one of the one of the options, we have to have that choice. There has to be opposition. One of the things I think is interesting too is, and I, r- I really appreciate what John mentioned about um, you know, having this, this background of, of slavery um, that the, the people were you know, kind of coming out of, uh, is that it, it really um, kind of lets us look at the Book of Mormon in a, a different way that you know, we might normally look at it as, as Westerners and Utah's and Americans you know, we we've got very specific ideas of what freedom means to us, and, and living in a land of liberty. Um, it appears the Nephites had a, a little bit of a, a different nuance, you know, than, than what we might we might think about, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about those particular terms.
1: Well, I I mean I'd, I'd use an example from from Grant's Hardy and Grant Hardy's annotation, uh, clear back in chapter one. In verse 6, wherefore I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. And then in his note, he says, well, this is a little hard to reconcile with the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, uh, yes and no. I mean, I can see that. But on the other hand, I also say, you know, God's ways are not my ways. And so if somebody's brought here, you know, in transatlantic slave trade or whatever by by some means— God is still bringing them here, in my opinion. So I, I think Lehi, in this instance, kind of gives us a bigger picture. But it's it's certainly something that uh, that's there. And and then, you know, I really appreciated what John said about the Redeemer in 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 a later part of this chapter. But early in the chapter, uh, once again, in verse four, uh, or excuse me, in verse three, he says. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. For thou hast beheld, this is Jacob, that in the fullness of time he cometh to bring salvation unto men. Mm-hmm. So obviously, there's this idea of the Messiah coming in order to, to you know, bring salvation to us the way that, the way that we talked about. So, Kevin, uh, at the end of this chapter, um, Lehi is telling them to turn to the mediator, Right. Right.
0: And there's that, I would that you should look to the great mediator and hearken unto his great commandments. Choose eternal life according to the will of the flesh, or choose not, not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh and the evil spirit, which can give it the spirit of the devil, the power to captivate, to bring you down to hell, that he may reign over you in his kingdom. And he says, uh, I have none other object, save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. So it's that the father just, trying to love his children and he sees each of them where they are and addresses their concerns about you know where they are and and so there's very you get very different personalities uh, in different spaces that that he's addressing but it's all the the love of a parent for his children and loving them even though he sees them making bad choices and appreciating even the ones that have made good choices appreciating that they've had difficult times nonetheless and that the life is going to be complicated, and if they want to get through it, you know, look to the Savior, look to Christ.
1: I'm I'm just uh, still amazed by how deep these two chapters are, in terms of providing us, you know, uh, the, essentially the way the world works, essentially the mission of the Messiah and why he came and, and how that all works out with our Father in Heaven's plan.
3: It's amazing, isn't it, that um, such a, a young upstate New York farm boy living in the 1820s would be able to give us such a a deep, you know, profound, solid, Yeah, where does this reasonable. come
1: from in Palmyra, New York? I, I doubt seriously that Joseph was <laughs> wrestling with those kind of deep questions. John?
2: Uh, well, maybe he was... Um, Often, local tavern discussing Kant's categorical imperial, <laughs> imperative over ale, as um, a couple of people suggested once. But uh, it sounds like no. Dan Vogel, but no, never mind. Uh, it, this is a, a, an amazing. This is amazing writing, an amazingly clear writing, no matter who wrote it, or when it's from. Yeah, it's It's timeless. It's worth looking at carefully. uh, And I'm sorry we've only been able to scratch the surface tonight. We
1: are, but uh, it is fruitful for study. So thank you for uh, listening. This is the end of our first half of Come uh, Follow Me segment for Interpreter Foundation. We'll be back right after this news break with the second hour of our program. Please stay tuned.